It is uh, Tony Katz today. It's not Tony Katz today on Tony Katz today. However, my name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BearingArms.com, and uh, happy to be sitting in for Tony on the program. You may have heard me earlier in the week talking about the new case that the Supreme Court has agreed to take, dealing with the right to bear arms in self-defense outside of the home. We are going to be talking about that. I mean, I would be remiss if I went three hours and I didn't spend some time talking about the Second Amendment, given that, you know, it's it's what I do for my day job. It's uh, what I've been involved in for nearly 20 years of my life. So coming up next hour, we're going to spend some time with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation, uh, Second Amendment attorney. Well, not, not just about the Second Amendment, but she uh, knows quite a bit about the Second Amendment. And she has been watching closely what SCOTUS is doing when it comes to the right to keep and bear arms. There are some curiosities about this case that we'll be uh, talking with Amy about uh, in the next hour. But uh, coming up in just a few minutes, my friend Ed Morrissey is going to be with us from Hot Air. We'll be talking about some of the big stories of the day. Uh, in Hour 3, Selena Zito going to join us as well, columnist for the New York Post for the Washington Examiner. She's got a couple of interesting pieces, including her latest at the Washington Examiner. Mitch McConnell, she says, the leader from middle America. And we'll be talking with Selena coming up uh, in hour three. But I gotta tell you, Joe Biden, man, what a piece of work this guy is. So, you know, obviously earlier in the week, he uh, held his, not a State of the Union, not a formal State of the Union, but it was a joint address to Congress. And most Americans simply didn't watch. Uh, even when you add in the cable news networks, Biden had about 26 million viewers for his speech before a joint session of Congress. That is down by about 15 million or so, uh, maybe even uh, closer to 20 million compared to some of the State of the Union addresses for President Donald Trump. Uh, Americans, I think many of them are tuning out what Joe Biden has to say and what the Democrats have to say. And I, I, I think that's dangerous. Now, I will confess, I, I didn't watch live because I knew that I'd be able to catch the important stuff, uh, you know, in sound bites and in news clips afterwards. I did not want to subject myself to an hour of Sleepy Joe talking in that sort of public radio tone of voice, uh, very just kind of mumbly and quiet. I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I ended up watching a couple of old episodes of The Wire uh, on uh, online instead of watching Joe Biden's joint address to Congress. But, you know, in his address... He, uh, he did bring up gun control, made that uh, dumb joke about deer wearing Kevlar vests and why does anybody need a 100-round magazine. I think the better question is, why do we need to put people in prison for simply having a 100-round magazine if they're not doing anything unlawful with it? That, that's my question, but that's the question that the Joe Biden and Democrats don't want to address. Uh, Biden is <laughs> still saying goofy stuff. though with today vaccines and about wearing a mask and he said that it is a quote patriotic responsibility for vaccinated people people who have had the covid vaccine to continue wearing masks when they're inside or even when they're outside if they are around folks who may not have had the vaccine now this flies in the face of the guidance from the CDC, which I think is overly cautious. The CDC says, look, if you've had the vaccine, you can attend what they call small outdoor gatherings. 
And not everybody there has to be vaccinated. You don't have to have a mask on. And again, this isn't a rule, but this is what, what they're saying is this is their suggestion, right? If you want to protect yourself, if you've been vaccinated, you're in a small gathering outside, there are some unvaccinated people there, you don't need to wear a mask. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I don't know too many people who are wearing masks outside in small gatherings to begin with. But Biden went even further than that. He was talking with the ABC... reporter together, I, I, I'd have to wear a mask, even though I've been vaccinated and you've been vaccinated. And again, that flies in the face of the CDC guidance. Now, I have had my first shot of the Pfizer vaccine. It took forever uh, for me to find a vaccine. In fact, I, I've been looking for my wife since February uh, she's on the waiting list. She is a, a cancer patient. She is uh, a, a high risk, uh, if she gets COVID, of having very serious complications. So it was really important to me that she be able to get the vaccine. I live in the state of Virginia, where we have an actual doctor as our governor, uh, Ralph Northam. I, I refer to him as Wreckit Ralph Northam. And despite the fact that we have a medical doctor in charge of the state, the state's rollout of the vaccines in Virginia has just been atrocious. I know perfectly healthy people in Northern Virginia who were able to get the vaccine in the D.C. suburbs before cancer patients who lived in more rural parts of the state were able to get a vaccine. And ultimately, it wasn't the state of Virginia who gave my wife a vaccine. It was CVS. It was the private sector, not the state government that actually stepped up and did the job. But she and I have had this conversation so we get our second shot next Wednesday. And then two weeks after that, you're fully vaccinated. We've already made plans to start doing the things that we haven't done for the past year because we have been overly cautious. And we know that we've been overly cautious. I'm willing to be overly cautious when it comes to my wife's life. I'm fine with that. But now that she's been vaccinated, and I've been vaccinated. And once that vaccination has taken effect and we're fully immunized, we're not going to be as overly cautious as we've been. She's going to start doing more of the grocery shopping. I've been doing all of the grocery shopping for the past year, much to her chagrin, because every time I go, I leave something out. We're going to go eat at a restaurant, which we haven't done in a year. We're going to sit inside. We've had, we, we've, you know, I take that back. We've gone out a couple of times. We've sat on the deck. We're going to sit inside. We're going to enjoy ourselves. We're going to start getting back to normal. Why? Because we've been vaccinated. The Democrats' messaging on this is so atrocious. I mean, basically what they're saying is, go get vaccinated. It can save your life. But then nothing will change. You still need to do everything that you've done for the past year. Don't go to the movies. Don't go to a baseball game. Don't be around your friends outside. Don't hug grandma, even if you're both fully vaccinated, because you never know what could happen. And even some doctors are actually starting to speak up about this. Uh, Monica Gandhi, who's a professor of medicine at uh, UC San Francisco, not exactly a conservative hotbed. Talking about uh, the joint session of Congress, she said everybody could have been in that room as opposed to, you know, limiting the attendance. She said if we're all fully vaccinated, we could all be unmasked and distanced in that room. Uh, Leanna Wynn, professor of health policy at George Washington University. And one, by the way, who's actually been one of those 
very, very cautious uh, medical professionals, now says there's nothing that's 100% safe. I think we need to be living with the concept of living with risk and reducing risk. Uh, Marty McCary, who is at Johns Hopkins, I actually interviewed him a few weeks ago, said, we've got the CDC moving towards a culture of absolute risk intolerance. He said, as a physician, I can tell you, if you're out of step with where people are and you don't have good answers to their very logical questions, such as, don't these restrictions contradict the messaging of vaccine safety? You lose credibility. Yeah. And you lose credibility with that group of people that they're trying to reach out to. Those who haven't gotten vaccines. Those who say, nah, I'm not going to get it, or, yeah, I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach. Those are the folks that they're trying to talk to. Those are the folks that they're trying to influence. And their messaging is so tone-deaf that they're turning these folks off. And meanwhile, uh, poll after poll shows it's actually the unvaccinated who are starting to get back to normal. And there is hesitancy, even among those who have been fully vaccinated, to do those things that I just talked about, to go out to dinner, to take in a movie, to spend time with friends without wearing a mask. It is, it, it's, it's sad to watch this. Because as Leanna Wynn says, we do need to live with the concept of living with risk and reducing that risk. But the helicopter parents... Remember that thing, that, that phrase, you know, about a decade ago, we had the helicopter parents. Well, now we're turned into this sort of helicopter society where we're all hovering over one another. Oh, don't do that. Something could possibly go wrong. Yeah, something could possibly go wrong. Every single day of our lives, bad things can happen. And sure, we should try to live our lives in a way that minimizes and mitigates the risk of something bad happening to us. But you can't get rid of that risk entirely, and you can't put yourself in a bubble and not actually live because you're afraid of what might happen if you do. All right, we're going to take a, a quick time out. Again, my name is Cam Edwards, sitting in for Mr. Tony Cass today. When we return, Ed Morsey from Hot Air will join us. We've got some other big stories to talk about, and we'd love to uh, hear from you as well. You can give us a call at... 833-GOT-TONY. Stick around. There's much more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this. It's Tony Katz today. Phone number to call, 833-GOT-TONY. Cam Edwards, editor at BarryAndArms.com, sitting in for Mr. Katz on the program. You know, we we're just talking about Joe Biden, this uh, interview with Today, uh, in which he talked about it being your patriotic responsibility to wear a mask, even after you've been vaccinated. So Biden was also asked about when schools are going to reopen. Uh, in fact, the specific question was kids in K-12 schools, obviously, are not going to be able to all get the vaccine by the fall. Should all schools in this country be open this fall for five day a week in person learning? Regardless, Biden said, based on the science and the CDC, they probably all should be open. All right. So join us to talk about this. Uh, Hot Air's Ed Morrissey, who has written a, a fantastic piece at HotAir.com. Ed, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Cam. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. All right. So Biden's response is based on the science and the CDC. Yeah, schools should probably be open in the fall, which begs the question that you ask, OK, well, then why aren't they open now? Because the science is just as valid for these schools to be open today. And yet less than half of all students in the United States are going to school full time right now. 
It's amazing because, I mean, literally, it's the same conditions we have right now. And Joe Biden promised to have schools fully reopened within the first 100 days. And, and legitimately so, because the science shows that, uh, you know, with just a minimum of, of uh, preparation, there is no risk at all in reopening these schools. And there are lots of problems. There, you create a lot more problems by keeping kids out of the schools. And we're seeing those problems. Um, there's emotional problems, there's educational problems, uh, there's economic problems, because when you keep, when you force kids to stay home, you've got to make sure that there's one parent there. And even if you have a two-parent household, most of the time, both parents work now. And one of the, one of the impacts that we're seeing of, uh, from this is that there has been a, uh, a marked decrease in the number of women in the um, in the employment pool, in in the labor force, and I mean this is trackable, and the school closings are a major driver of that. And so there's all sorts of equity issues that come from keeping these schools closed. But what the uh, you know what, what's going on is that the teachers unions don't want to come back. They want to use this as leverage. Uh, you know the Los Angeles the uh, teachers union in Los Angeles wants to leverage it for deep with, with uh, for defunding the police, for instance. I mean, this is, it's crazy. And, uh, and, and so this is sort of giving the game away. There's no reason to keep these schools closed. The, the governments in these, um, in these areas should demand that they reopen. Absolutely. But as you say, you know, the, the teachers unions are, in essence, holding these kids hostage in a lot of districts. Uh, and it's it's so sad to see you you quote a, a piece by uh, Representative Virginia Fox who uh, said school board leaders are distracted by their phones while parents cry out for help and then are mocked by the school board members during private meetings. We've seen no shortage of this too, Ed, uh, where you know you've got education officials who are laughing at or who are annoyed by these parents who are pleading for their kids to get back in the classrooms because they can see the detrimental effects that being out of school for over a year now has had on their own children. What I have found amazing in this, Cam, is the, the pushback from these parents, or not the parents, I'm sorry, the pushback from the teachers' unions, and not teachers, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get too much in, into the teachers, but from the teachers' unions and some school boards uh, ridiculing parents for wanting the schools open by saying all they really want is babysitters. Um, well, if that's how you see your value, then I think that we have a real problem with the teachers' unions and the school boards. Um, parents want their kids to get an education. They want them to be educated in the best way possible. Uh, and what they're getting for their money is the worst of all worlds here. And, and they're sick and tired of doing that, especially when it's not necessary. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so, so I assume that, uh, you know, some of these teachers unions may fall in line by the fall. Others may very well not. Uh, do you foresee a, a continued growth in the number of you know, homeschooling parents, the number of parents who are making the financial sacrifice to put their kids in private school. I, I mean, is this a, a sort of sea change moment in terms of how we view the public education system in this country? It should be. And, and I would say one other 
thing here is that this is an opportunity for people who who want to uh, promote school choice. This is a great opportunity for this, not just in the suburbs, but in the in the cities where most of these uh, unions are balking at, at returning to school. Is is give the parents in these cities the option of taking their money out of the system and, and putting it into private schools. And private schools are more accountable. Parents are you know their their parents can engage more with them because there's uh, fewer government edicts and and union edicts that uh, come with that, and so they have a greater control over their children's education in private in private education institutions. And so this is, I think, a golden opportunity for for conservatives, for Republicans. That's not always the same thing as both you and I know, Cam, uh, to make the argument and to and to have and to find a, uh, at least one issue where conservatives can connect to um, voters in inner cities, especially parents in inner cities, by pointing out the, um, the that privatization in this case is a huge benefit and um, gets them around the, uh, the the big government approach that is keeping their kids from an education. Absolutely. I, and, and I do hope that the, the GOP and conservatives, as you say, they're not always uh, synonymous with, with one another. I, I, I do hope that they'll, they'll take the initiative to do that. I mean, look, even if it doesn't get you 51 percent of the vote in big cities, um, it can get you 30 percent of the vote. It can get you 35 percent of the vote. Where right now you maybe are getting 18, 19, 20 percent. Uh, and those margins matter for elections. But but more importantly, these issues matter to voters. And you, you can't expect people to flock to your party if you're not giving them a reason to and if you're not engaging in that type of outreach. Well, I think the other thing too is it, it would get the it would it would promote a better sort of politics, and I've written about this an awful lot, which is that you know the uh, conservatives and Republicans have a real problem engaging people in communities that are outside of their normal um, comfort zone. Uh, and the reason why they do the reason why that happens is because they're not part of those communities, and so they don't know the people very well. They don't listen to um, the people who live in those communities to find what really matters to them and and show how their agenda can help their lives specifically in that community. This is one Wait, I tell you what, huge Ed, let's, let's stop there for just a second because we've got a hard out here. But uh, when we come back, more with Ed Morrissey from Hot Air. We're going to talk more about our schools, but we're also going to talk about a call from Senator Ted Cruz for John Kerry to resign or be fired. Stick around. There is much more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Tony Katz today, phone number to call, 833-GOT-TONY. Now, Tony is actually often, I don't know where Tony is. He's probably pouncing somewhere or seizing on something. That's what conservatives and Republicans do, according to the media, right? We're always pouncing. We're always seizing. Uh, and in uh, this case, Politico reports that uh, Mitch McConnell is uh, seizing. Oh, no, he's pouncing. I, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. He's pouncing uh, on uh, uh, the Biden administration's embrace of the 1619 project. My friend Ed Morrissey at Hot Air is uh, with us on the program. And uh, Ed, you've got a great take on this, which points out, by the way, that Politico starts and bases their whole story on the fact that, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and Republicans are leaning into the culture war uh, because Biden wants to promote the 1619 project, which views American history through this lens of the country is inherently evil uh, because of slavery. And they sort of bury the fact that opposition to the Biden administration isn't coming just from the right. It's coming from the middle. It's even coming from the far left in some circles. It's been pushed 
back across the political spectrum. The 1619 Project, there's been pushback on this across the political spectrum. The New York Times has had to fall back on some of its claims. They've done stealth edits on uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones's essays. Nicole Hannah-Jones has flat-out lied about what it was that she first claimed in this. Um, and and has and, you know, this has all been documented, right? So uh, using this as a curriculum is... Uh, is absurd. Uh, this is not a this is not a, a historical project. This is a political manifesto. It is not a school curriculum. And uh, using this 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 as a basis for teaching kids, when historians, a number of historians, have come out and said this is absolutely not correct, is uh, and, and and which was written basically by non-historians in the first place, uh, mm-hmm. is is ridiculous. And if, you know, I remember when the uh, Trump administration wanted to put through the 1776 project. Do you remember that? It was sort of like the answer to the to the 1619 yes. project. Yes. And people lost their minds over the idea that they were going to dictate this to schools, and it was propaganda that was going to be imposed on schools. And it didn't last long. I mean, it wasn't really, it wasn't really a serious effort anyway. But, um, but the same media that lost their minds about that are now, now the big story is that Republicans are pushing back on <laughs> using the 1619 project as a, as a school curriculum. It's, 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 it's a worse kind of media bias that there is. It is. And, you know, and they call it red meat for the base. And they say that they're leaning into the culture wars. But, but they also say at the end of their, uh, their, their piece, they say the anti-1619 sentiment is uniting one of the oddest coalitions in politics, McConnell conservatives, Damon Linker-style centrists, and anti-woke socialists. Now, I, I, and you say that this is strange for them to call this one of the oddest coalitions in politics because it gets it entirely backwards. It's actually one of the more broader coalitions in politics that we've seen. And when you've got folks across the political spectrum, as you say, uh, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell to to outright socialists of the Fourth International uh, saying this is a really bad idea to be teaching this in schools. Maybe we should take notice of that as opposed to trying to spin this as just, you know, uh, Republicans got a Republican. I, I would think that that would be the story, right? I mean, that was certainly the story when we wrote about this. Um, this was, what, in, I think, November 2019, right, when um, when the World Socialist website, <laughs> of all yeah. places, you know, did interviews with four very well-esteemed historians to talk about all the things that this, uh, the, this 1619 project gets wrong. I, I mean, we were all kind of astounded, but they were saying, no, it actually was, it, the, the American Revolution was actually actually, you know, fought on the idea of freedom, and it was actually founded on the ideals in the Declaration of Independence, even though the colonies, some of the colonies themselves weren't, uh, you know, weren't exactly great uh, examples of that. Uh, I mean, when you have the World Socialist website uh, doing apologetics <laughs> for Thomas Jefferson, I mean, don't you, don't you sit up and take notice of this? I, I just find it amazing that this is, oh, there's an odd coalition. No, it's not an odd coalition. It's everybody that doesn't have an axe to grind doesn't have a black lives matter axe to grind in this thing everybody else recognizes that this is nonsense yeah well the, the socialists may 
uh, may want to view everything through a class lens, right, and through an economic lens as opposed to through a racial lens. So that may be one of their problems. I'm also, uh, I, I recall that back in the 1930s, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that, obviously, but uh, the, the Communist Party of the United States slogan in the 1930s was, communism is 20th century Americanism. And they actually promoted uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson because they wanted to try to, you know, curry favor with the American people. So, uh, you know, the, the, the socialists, uh, you know, uh, joining forces with the McConnell conservatives to oppose the 1619 Project is maybe a little surprising. But again, as you say, the bigger issue here is that most people object to this. And as far as, you know, playing into the culture wars, I got to say, I mean, I think it's probably a winning issue. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news. Oklahoma just passed a law that will ban the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. And I imagine that's probably going to go over pretty well in the state of Oklahoma. I would think so. And uh, I, I don't know that I agree with that because I, I, I am of the opinion that, you know, academia really should be open, open to discussing all sorts of different topics. Mm-hmm. But clearly academia has been, um, has been twisted, has been warped over the last few decades. And to the point now where they're imposing speech codes and uh, telling people that you can't mention certain subjects. I mean, it's sort of fighting fire with fire to a certain extent, but it's also part of the problem. However, the, the big issue here is that uh, this, this critical race theory, uh, which is driving this, is, uh, is leading people down into some really bad dead ends in terms of both philosophy, in terms of public policy, in terms of uh, history. And, uh, and it is, uh, as Ron DeSantis called it, I believe, either yesterday or today, uh, it's Marxism. It's, it's what happens when you marry Marxism with, uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter type of activism. And, and this is what you get. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is maybe why it's a little surprising that the socialists are, are, are not on board. But again, I, I think, you know, it's it's um, the, the the destination is largely the same. It's how you get there. That's a little bit different between, you know, the uh, the, the world socialist web uh, and the Black Lives Matter. But there is, I think, a a Marxism uh, inherent uh, in the idea of critical race theory, and even I would argue within the 1619 Project itself, and I'm with you. Look, I, I believe in the value of a pluralistic society. I believe that we should uh, be uh, willing to engage with ideas that we don't agree with. But as you say, that's not the reality of academia. It's not even the reality of K-12 education anymore. Uh, and, and that's the danger: is that it wouldn't be that critical race theory would be taught as a theory, but that it would be taught as a fact. Right, exactly. And, right. and, and I think that, you know, it's as, as the only fact, as the only set of facts. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that if you're talking about the 1619 Project in college as a, uh, as a perspective, maybe there's some value to it. Um, but as a, you know, elementary and high school uh, curriculum, absolutely not. All right, Mr. Ed Morrissey, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. It is always good talking with you. And uh, make sure you check out Ed's writing at hotair.com. In fact, he's got a great piece uh, just up, a surprising source for this. But the uh, the Washington Post actually uh, taking a jab at China's Belt and Road Project. Uh, Ed, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. Thank you. All right, Ed Morrissey with us from uh, HotAir.com. Next hour, Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation going to join us. And uh, in hour three, my friend Selena Zito will be dropping by as well. When we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to talk about a, another story that Ed actually has at Hot Air. Uh, talking about John Kerry. Remember when uh, uh, John Kerry supposedly 
uh, leaked all kinds of information to Iran's foreign minister about covert Israeli strikes and things of that nature. And the Biden administration said, no, 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 never happened, never happened. Well, now there's apparently audio of the Iranian foreign minister, and it sure sounds like it happened. And it sure sounds like what John Kerry told uh, the Iranian foreign minister was not public knowledge, not in the public domain, and really should have been kept to himself. Stick around. We've got more Tony Cast today coming up next. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BarryAndArms.com, sitting in for Mr. Katz today. And you remember the story a couple weeks ago? New York Times was the one to break it. Uh, Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, back in March, uh, had a conversation with this Iranian economist who's an ally of Zarif. And this conversation was apparently recorded, but it was not meant to be publicly released. It was a, a private conversation between the two men. Uh, in this conversation, Zarif repeatedly talks about, hey, this isn't for public consumption, but it got leaked out anyway. And in this conversation, Mohammad Zavad Zarif says that John Kerry told him, or told Tehran anyway, uh, that Israel had conducted a, a, a number of strikes against Iran, like at least 200 strikes. Obviously, some of these strikes were probably known to the Iranian government. Others, they might have been curious about what happened. They might not have even realized that this was, um, you know, counter espionage uh, activity on the part of the Israeli government. And John Kerry denied this. Oh, no, no, no. I never said anything about this. I never said anything, uh, I never revealed any sort of secrets. Well, now we've got a new translation of this conversation. The Washington Free Beacon actually commissioned a, a translation uh, of this audio between Zarif and his buddy. And in this translation, Zarif says, quote, Kerry told me that Israel had launched 200 airstrikes against you, meaning Iran. And then his buddy says, you didn't know? And Zarif says, no, no. Now, one of the reasons why Zarif did not want this conversation getting leaked to the public, it has nothing to do with protecting John Kerry, it has everything to do with protecting his own rear end. Because over the course of this conversation, Zarif talks about how the mullahs and the Revolutionary Guard in Iran are, are really the ones running the country, as opposed to the supposedly democratically elected politicians in Iran. Which, by the way, we all know that that's the case. But that's not something that you say publicly in Iran unless you want to bring down the ire of the mullahs and the Revolutionary Guard. You want to try to keep that, you know, that's one of those open secrets, one of those things you don't really talk about all that much. So that's one of the reasons why Zarif didn't really want this conversation out there. But it did get out there. And now this new translation shows that uh, Zarif says, no, this was new information. This was not in anything that the Iranian government was aware of, which has led Ted Cruz to call for John Kerry to step down. In fact, he says if this trans... is, ...and if Biden must fire him immediately. Now, I don't think there's any chance that John Kerry steps down. And I don't think that there's any chance 
that Joe Biden fires John Kerry over this. In fact, I, I suspect that the Biden administration is going to continue to deny that, that Kerry did anything uh, to reveal any sort of national security secrets or to unmask Israeli intelligence operations to Iran. They're just going to pretend that that didn't happen. And they're going to continue to engage with Iran uh, on their nuclear program. In fact, I, I think one of the reasons why they're going to pretend that this never happened is because they don't want this to get in the way of their outreach to Iran, to try to get Iran uh, back in the, uh, the fold of this uh, nuclear deal with uh, the European Union and the United States. I, I don't think they're going to be successful in doing so. I think this is a gimme to the mullahs. This is a gimme to the Revolutionary Guard. This is a, we're going to let this one slide. Uh, maybe there'll be some, you know, private chastisement of John Kerry. You know, John, next time you uh, fly overseas on your private jet, can you please keep your flipping mouth shut? Do you have to open your mouth all the time? I mean, you know, not everybody is your friend here, John. But publicly, no, I don't think the administration is going to say anything at all about this uh, to confirm or corroborate what Zarif actually said in this private conversation, because if they did so, uh, well, as my friend Ed Morsi uh, says at Hot Air, you know, we just talked to Ed, he said they would have a heck of a time arguing that Zarif is a trustworthy partner in a deal to end Iran's nuclear weapons program while simultaneously painting him as a man who lies to his friends in private. And Ed's right about that. I mean, to acknowledge this is a, is a, is a step too far for the Biden administration. And so they will deny what appears to be reality uh, in exchange for pursuing this proposed path to peace with Iran, a, a country that Zarif even acknowledges is not run by democratically minded politicians, but by the mullahs who chant death to America, who call the United States the great Satan. That, that, that's who the Biden administration wants to engage with as opposed to taking this threat seriously. All right, listen, coming up uh, in Hour 2, we're going to talk with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation, and we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics. That would be the right to keep and bear arms, which uh, is a right of the people, which shall not be infringed. And the Supreme Court announced on Monday of this week that they will be taking a Second Amendment case. Oral arguments are going to be held this fall in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. Now, this case deals with the licensing laws to get a concealed carry permit in New York State, which is uh, very different than the laws in most states in the union. There are uh, 42 states that are what we call shall issue. In other words, you pass the training, you pass a background check, you get your license to carry. But there are still eight states out there, including New York, California, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts, and a couple of others, that are what we call May issue. And that is, you pass the training, you pass a background check, and the state can still say, nah, you don't get to carry a gun for self-defense because we don't think you've given us a good enough reason. Or we don't think you're suitable. Uh, we can't prohibit you from owning a gun. But we just, you know, your character is just a little sketchy. And in these states, as you might imagine, the number of concealed carry permittees far lower 
than in the shall issue states. So will New York's gun laws get tossed this fall? Well, I know I have my fingers crossed, but we're going to talk with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation about it. We're also going to talk about the changing attitudes when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. Some bad news for Biden and the anti-gun Democrats in a couple of new polls. We'll get to that after the uh, top of the hour news. Stick around. We've got much more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this quick break. But that is actually one of the lowest numbers that the Washington Post has recorded in their surveys going back to 2013. And support for more gun control laws is basically coming from one part of the political spectrum right now. Republicans obviously oppose the idea of putting more gun control laws in place, but opposition among Republicans has actually grown by 18 points in this ABC poll compared to 2018. It's now something like 76% of Republicans say more important to protect the right to own a firearm than it is to put more gun control laws on the books. Independents have also flipped. In 2018, when the Washington Post and ABC News asked the same question, almost 60% of independent voters said it was more important to protect the, uh, excuse me, said it was more important to pass more gun control laws than it was to protect the right to own a firearm. And now those numbers are almost reversed. I think it's 53% of independents now say it's more important to protect the right to own a gun than it is to pass more gun control laws. So where is this support coming from? The 80% of Republicans, excuse me, the 80% of Democrats who say, yeah, 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 we need more gun control laws. <laughs> Although even that number has declined a little bit compared to the last time that The Washington Post and ABC News asked this question. When you break down the demographics in terms of age, it's even more striking. There has been a 20-point drop in support for gun control among voters 18 to 29 since 2018. A 20-point drop. Now think about that. In 2018, that was the year that the, uh, the shootings at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, took place. And we saw the rise of the March for Our Lives movement, right, led by uh, teen gun control activists like David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez. And they had all kinds of media attention. They had all kinds of celebrity backing. They're still, quote unquote, celebrities. At least a couple of them are. I mean, David Hogg, you know, he's given up on his pillow company. He's, he's going back to Harvard and, and his gun control work now. But Despite all of that effort aimed directly at young voters over the past three years, support for gun control has cratered in that age group, which I think is, it's not only worth acknowledging, it's actually worth exploring. Because obviously it's not what gun control activists intended. It's not what the media expected. But I think we've got a couple of things going on. First, 2020 changed a lot of people's minds about their right to keep and bear arms. We saw across the country more than 8 million Americans become gun owners for the very first time in their life in 2020. And I suspect that we've seen millions more do the same in 2021. Why did they do that? Well, Back in March of last year, when we all went into lockdown, that was, that was new. 
that was that was uh, that was kind of scary, right? We didn't really know what was going to happen next because this had never happened before. So you saw a first initial surge in gun purchases, and then in late May, early June, with the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the riots that ensued afterwards, you saw another surge in sales as people wanted to protect themselves. We saw another surge heading into the November elections, which typically does happen in a presidential election year. But throughout 2020, we've also seen a rise in violent crime in many cities. And unfortunately, that has continued in a lot of places in 2021 as well. We have seen these efforts to, if not outright defund the police, to uh, impose restrictions on proactive policing, which I think has exacerbated the violent crime problem and I think has caused a lot of folks to think more closely about their ability to protect themselves and the people that they love. And that would include young Americans. But I also think some of those young Americans who aren't conservatives, who aren't even independents, I think they too may be rejecting the idea of more gun control laws because how do those laws actually get enforced? Is, 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 is it teams of mental health professionals going around to enforce a ban on large capacity magazines or modern sporting rifles? No, it's police, it's law enforcement. So if you believe that policing is inherently racist, if you believe that the criminal justice system disproportionately impacts uh, young black and brown men, do you really believe that we should be putting more laws on the books that create nonviolent possessory crimes that can put people in prison? And do you believe that somehow those gun control laws are going to be applied in a colorblind fashion as opposed to every other law that's on the books that disproportionately impacts young black and brown men? It makes no sense. It's a contradiction. And I think that as a result, you've seen some younger Americans say, yeah, you know what, it's more important to uh, reform the police or defund the police or in some cases even abolish the police than it is to put more gun laws on the books because we don't want to see more policing. Now, I would again, that's not necessarily a pro-Second Amendment point of view. It's an anti-policing point of view, but it leads you to an anti-gun control position. And instead, you may be more interested in violence prevention efforts, you know, those sort of community locally based programs that work to identify the most violent offenders, uh, work to de-escalate gang violence. You've got, you know, the violence interrupters on the streets of uh, some cities. You may be more inclined to promote those programs and to back those programs than the idea of creating new nonviolent crimes that come with a multi-year prison sentence. So for a variety of reasons, I think Americans are becoming generally less inclined to support gun control, including Joe Biden and the Democrats' gun control agenda. But what will the Supreme Court have to say about this when they weigh in on the right to keep a firearm on your person for self-defense outside of the home? We're going to talk about that with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation after a quick time out. So stick around. We've got much more Tony Katz today coming up. Tony Cast today, 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards. Uh, my day job is editor at BearingArms.com, and we are talking about one of my favorite topics this hour, the 
right of the people to keep and bear arms, which shall not be infringed. The Supreme Court agreed to hear a case that will hopefully answer, to me, a, a question that, that already has an obvious answer. Does the right to keep and bear arms extend outside of the home? Uh, Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation has been closely following the Second Amendment for a number of years. She follows us on the program, or she joins us on the program right now. Amy, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Kim. How are you? I am fantastic. So for, for folks who don't really know what this case is all about, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett, um, I, I've done my best to try to set this up. Uh, this deals with the right to carry. New York's laws are so extreme that basically everybody, everybody in New York State starts out from the position of you don't have the right to bear arms right but if you can right. right but if you can prove that you're special then you may get permission to do so right yeah so what essentially what new york and a handful of you know uh, other states have done uh is they, they have what are called may issue permitting uh for concealed carry and they require a showing of good cause so let me break this down uh, basically you're right that the state starts with the premise of you do not have any sort of right or privilege to carry in public despite you know the, the fact that the second amendment says there is a right to bear arms they sort of read that to be like yeah there's a right to bear arms if you can prove you really need it and you get a permit for it. Um, so the way this works in New York is it is entirely up to the discretion of the, the permitting officer. Um, so if you show up and you say, look, I'm just generally, you know, as an ordinary law-abiding citizen, I'm concerned about crime in my neighborhood. You know, I, I'm concerned that I'm a young woman uh, or, you know, what, what have you. Um, that's not enough. That's not considered good cause. This just general desire to be able to defend yourself in public. Um, now, New York uh, and then some other places, like some counties in California, almost take that to an extreme uh, in terms of the discretion that they use. If you're not following uh, Rob Romano from the Firearms uh, Policy Center on Twitter, uh, he, he does a great job of going through some of the rejection notices for these mm -hmm. applications. And, and so many times it basically boils down to, ah, I know there were a lot of like crimes in your neighborhood recently, but have you personally tried being a victim? of crime uh, you know have you tried being victimized more often um, you know where it's just incredibly incredibly hard to get a permit to reach that bar um, and basically you're right it comes down to at the end of the day if you're just an ordinary law-abiding citizen you essentially do not have a right to bear arms in these states and so that's the question at its core coming before the court does the Second Amendment mean what it says when it says that there is a right to bear arms. All right. Now, that's the question at, at its core that's before the court, but that's not the question specifically that the court's going to answer, right? Because the, the question that the plaintiffs had, had posed to the court, uh, and the plaintiffs, by the way, the plaintiff's attorney is a Paul Clement, former Solicitor General, very, very astute attorney when it comes to Second Amendment issues. Uh, and, and he had asked the court to answer the question, does the Second Amendment right to uh, carry a gun extend outside of the home? And the court said, well... We're going to answer a slightly different question. We're going to answer the, the question of whether or not these four individual plaintiffs who were denied a permit to carry had their Second Amendment rights violated. Um, is that a distinction without a difference or, or, or is this cause for concern? 
Uh, well, so we don't know yet. Um, there's still certainly a way that you could get a majority of justices to answer this more broadly, you know, essentially say, yes, they had their rights violated because as ordinary law-abiding citizens, they have a right to bear arms in public. Um, or, you know, you, you could see at the end of the day, maybe you only have a, a majority of justices who sort of answer this narrowly, who, who essentially say, yeah, you know, the, the way that New York analyzed these individuals' uh, right to have a permit. And, and keep in mind, so when, when you look into who these petitioners are, um, that the individual petitioners, um, they're both uh, individuals who have gone through pretty extensive firearms training, taken classes, um, are, are basically perfect uh, petitioners in, in every mm-hmm. regard. Um, so, you know, it, it could be that you just get five justices who say, yes, you know, in, in this case, New York was, was wrong, but it's a, it's a fairly narrow opinion that then you still have states like California that say, oh, well, you know, our analysis that we use is a little different, so maybe ours is fine. Uh, and then they make they the, the court sort of makes states relitigate this again and again through um, the, the the lower courts. And you know, unfortunately, in that case, you'd, you'd probably see a lot of what we saw after uh, Heller and McDonald of lower courts saying, "Yeah, we know what you said, um, but we're going to read that as narrowly as possible and render it toothless to still uphold these laws." So I think you're right. There are some concerns, um, but I, I think you know I, I think there's still a lot of hope. That at the end of the day, again, what you get is five justices who write this in such a way um, that that it does still come down to, yes, they had a right to keep and bear arms as ordinary law-abiding citizens, and that's why you violated that right by not granting them that permit. I got to say, I mean, if if the court were to decide this so narrowly that it would open up again uh, all kinds of room for states to, you know, slightly modify their laws and lead to another round of lawsuits, we might actually see Justice Clarence Thomas uh, turn into Samuel L. Jackson uh, on the bench because he's been <laughs> one of those who has been so frustrated by 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 the abuse of the lower courts in in ignoring or misreading what the Supreme Court said in the Heller decision. He might very well just lose his mind uh, if the if his colleagues say, well, we're, we're, we're not willing to make a, 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 you know, a big statement here and clarify this. Um, and, you know, although it, it is interesting, you know, I, so I'm looking at reason.com today and Josh Blackman, uh, law professor, you and I talked about him uh, on Bearing Arms Campus, mm-hmm. which is the, uh, the show that I do every day for Bearing Arms. And, and he saw this limited cert grant as cause for concern. But I don't know if you've seen his latest post at the reason making more sense of the limited cert grant in this case. And he quotes uh, uh, Will Boddy, um, who says that it could be that the justices are going to bring in another Second Amendment case that's out there. This is a case out of the Ninth Circuit called Young versus Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And this is a really egregious decision. It dealt with the open carrying of farms, which in Hawaii also requires a permit, which is also not ever given to anybody. And so the Ninth Circuit decided that, well, there is no general right to openly carry a firearm for self-defense. A couple of years ago, the Ninth Circuit had also decided that there is no general right to carry a concealed firearm for self-defense. And so the Ninth Circuit has, in essence, Written the set, written the right to bear arms out of the Second yeah. Amendment entirely. Uh, we've got about a, a minute here. Uh, what what do you think of the idea that the Supreme Court, when Young versus Hawaii reaches the court in a couple of months over the summer, that they could take this case and incorporate it uh, alongside New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett? 
Well, it, it, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. It's sort of rare that the court does that, um, you know, from just a sort of quick analysis. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot that they could do with Young v. Hawaii that they couldn't also do in New York State Rifle and Pistol. Um, but it is interesting because, you know, as you said, Young v. Hawaii, what the Ninth Circuit has done there is so egregious. They, they really have. They've said, okay, you don't have a right to open carry. You don't have a right to concealed carry. You basically don't have a right to keep and bear arms. Uh, or Sorry, you don't have a right to bear arms. So, I mean, I mean it's, it's possible that the, the court wants to do that. The timing would certainly work um, because, you know, you've now got uh, several months before the court will hear the Second Amendment case. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's interesting. It's not normally, I think, how the court would do this. But, you know, given the fact that they haven't acted with the Second Amendment <laughs> in, in the way that they've acted with other, you know, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, um, yeah. Fifth Amendment cases, yeah, maybe. All right, hang on to that thought. We've got more to come with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation. Stick around. Much more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. Unfortunately, it is not Tony Katz today on Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BarionArms.com, and we're talking with Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation. You can find Amy on Twitter, and you should be following her if you care about the right to keep and bear arms, uh, at Amy Swearer, S-W-E-A-R-E-R. Uh, and Amy, I want to talk about, uh, we've been talking about the Supreme Court uh, a case dealing with the right to bear arms, but let's talk about uh, Joe Biden's recent comments about the right to keep and bear arms as well. You had a, a fantastic Twitter thread. Thank you, by the way, for watching Biden live because I tuned out. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't take it. I knew I was just going to lose my mind. I ended up watching old episodes of The Wire uh, instead of watching Joe Biden live. But, but you fact check the president in real time when he made his joint address to Congress earlier this week. Uh, and it sounds like he was incredibly dishonest, incredibly misleading, uh, and and obviously um, completely and utterly opposed to our right to keep and bear arms. Yeah. Um, you, well, you know, it's funny uh, because I actually ended up being able to fact check a lot of that before real time, uh, because for those of you who don't know, the, the, the transcript of the speech was was put up as soon as the speech starts. So you can kind of, you know, control after like, where did he talk about guns? And what's what's funny to me is that some of the most egregious aspects of it, you know, it's, it's not things where, you know, he made a slip of the tongue or was, you know, talking offhand and just sort of, you know, said, said things in an offhand manner. I, I mean, these were written into this. They were intentionally put in there as, you know, not just mischaracterizations, but sometimes blatant lies. Mm. Um, I, I mean, some of the most uh, egregious examples, you know, you, you have him, one, not not just mocking gun owners, um, you know, is the deer wearing a Kevlar vest, but saying things that are just objectively untrue. For example, he uh, stated that the, uh, the 1994 assault weapons ban at the, at the federal level, that uh, we know now that it, you know, lowered crime rates. And then he seemed to suggest that, you know, once that expired, gun crime rates went up. And it's just not true. So the actual report, the, the government-sponsored report on the federal assault weapons ban said, look, these guns were rarely used in crime before the ban. And if we reinstate the ban, it's not really going to do anything. It's not going to have an impact. And indeed, that's what we've seen, um, is that crime rates have remained even lower than they were in the 1990s, despite the fact that Americans have bought something like 20 million more of these guns. Uh, I, I mean, th- these are just things that are agreed untrue. Um, I think the other uh, most well, I tell you what, hang on. Let, let's let's stop there yeah. for just a second because this is something that I think 
you know, poll after poll has shown most Americans, even when violent crime is declining, most Americans believe that violent crime is actually on the rise because the media right. doesn't cover crimes that don't happen. Right. Every every year when the FBI's uniform crime report comes out and it shows a, you know, five or six percent drop in violent crime, that's a one day news story. But the other three hundred and sixty four days out of the year, your local news is leading with the the latest crime story. Right. And so we we get the I think the false impression that violent crime is always getting worse. But in reality, as you say, going back to the 1990s, violent crime rates have actually dropped by half in the United States. This is an incredible success story. And, and it's not just violent crime in general, it's gun crime in particular. Um, so mm-hmm. when you look at the difference between some of the, the early 90s and today, um, we're talking about 50%, 40 to 50%, depending on the year, because there are fluctuations in gun homicide. And when you look at um, non-fatal firearm crimes, or, or sorry, non-fatal firearm uh, shootings, injuries, um, it, it's actually at one point hit one-sixth, one-sixth of what it was in the early 1990s. Um, and keep in mind, at the same time, not only wow. have we added in the last, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, 15 years since the assault weapons ban expired, you've got 20 million, uh, roughly 20 million more, quote unquote, assault weapons. But the mm-hmm. number of guns per capita has gone up about 50 or 60 percent. Um, you know, so we've had a lot more guns. You've had a lot more states open up uh, the, the ability of law abiding citizens to carry in public, um, you know, Right now, it's only eight states where you don't have that right. Um, so, you know, millions more Americans carrying in public and crime rates have stayed low. They've stayed, um, you know, for the past 10 years at a pretty stable low rate. And that's after, again, that, that very significant drop in the 1990s. So it just doesn't add up. It's not true that the assault weapons ban wouldn't had anything to do with it or that when it expired, crime rates shot up. It's just not true. And to, to put that in there intentionally, knowing this is just it's egregious. It is egregious, but again, it's 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 based on I think the fundamental premise of the gun control movement, which is more guns equals more crime. Even when that is demonstrably false, they still cling, perhaps bitterly, uh, to that belief that the the only way to improve public safety is to try to disarm the American people, uh, and, and which which leads you to, you know, the lies that we heard from the podium uh, when when Joe Biden was making this joint address to Congress, including I think you were about to talk about the the lies over magazines right ammunition magazines yeah, so uh, th- this was the other one that immediately, I think, caught everyone's attention um, was that, you know, to, to sort of uh, defend this call for a ban on so-called high-capacity magazines. You know, he starts talking about 100, one 100-round drum magazines, which, first of all, is, is not uh, the, the, the common type of magazine that he, people are talking about. You know, most people, um, when they're talking about high-capacity magazines, it's factory standard 15. 30 round magazines um, but then he goes on right. to Biden, Biden's magazine ban himself does not start at, at, not, at 100 rounds I mean it starts at right. anything over 10 rounds right you know, so so he takes you know just the most egregious example, and then um, he says, you know, well, you take these hundred round magazines and and you put them in your gun, and you know all of a sudden, you know, you, you have a gun that can fire a hundred rounds in seconds, like not unless you have a belt-fed crew-serve machine gun off, the, you know, that is uh, part of the the NFA regulations. I mean, there's just no world in which a semi-automatic rifle fires a hundred rounds 
in seconds. I mean, maybe if you're very, very, very good and, um, you know, have a hundred round magazine, I mean, maybe I give you, maybe you get off a hundred in a minute. Maybe if you don't aim, you know, right. Um, but, but what, what he's doing is intentionally conflating. He's taking advantage of the fact that a lot of Americans truly don't know this. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sounds reasonable to them. Um, but he's conflating semi-automatic firearms with fully automatic machine guns. And he's doing it intentionally to make people think that, oh, well, we're just trying to ban machine guns instead of, you know, oh, we're, we're trying to ban most semi-automatic rifles that are just your normal, typical, you know, commonly owned firearm. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and Biden uses, I, I, I hate this rhetorical device on the part of gun control advocates, but they do it all the time. Why does anybody need one of these magazines? When I think the real question is, why do you want to put people in prison for owning them, for simply owning them, for for not committing a violent crime? Because under Biden's gun control plan, the one that he ran on, uh, any quote unquote large capacity magazine that that was not handed over to the government would have to be registered under the National Firearms Act. And if you were that means if you were found in possession of an unregistered magazine that could hold 20 rounds, you could be looking at. What is it? What is an NFA violation? Ten years in federal prison uh, yeah, and a hundred thousand dollar fine? Ten years. Yeah, I, I think it's a felony up to ten years. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm very curious why Biden and Democrats don't want to talk about the penalties that would be imposed, uh, particularly when they're talking about the need to reimagine policing and reimagine the criminal justice right. system. And here they are proposing things that would put that would frankly turn millions of Americans into criminals uh, and could put them in a federal penitentiary for a decade. Yeah. You know, and, and the unfortunate thing is, you know, again, you want to talk about um, uh, about racial justice and, and policing reform. We already, we already know that, that in states that have, um, you know, sort of arbitrary gun laws, whether it's permitting gun laws um, or whether it's things like this, where, you know, if you want to keep your 10 magazines that you have for, that are factory standard for your gun, you're going to have to pay $200 each. So, you know, I hope you got $1,000 lying around to give the, to the government. That, that, that enforcement disproportionately impacts poor people of color who either didn't have the money or didn't have the means or didn't have the connections to get that done, but were still in fear for their lives. Yep. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not, it's not going to be the ATF swooping into white suburbia to see if you've turned in your magazines. It's going to be the ATF going into disproportionately uh, neighborhoods of color and, you know, finding the people who didn't register them. Um, and that's really the only difference is, is that somebody registered them and someone did not. Not that, you know, one person was inherently dangerous and another person was not. Um, it, it really comes down to money and registration and jumping through hoops. Um, Absolutely. And, and overwhelmingly, we see again and again, um, it, it's enforced against people of color disproportionately. Something else the uh, gun control advocates don't want to talk about. Amy Swear at the Heritage Foundation. You can find her on Twitter at Amy Swear. Thank you so much, Amy. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Cam. Good to see you. Uh, you too. We've got more of Tony Cast today coming up right after a quick timeout. So stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. Tony Cast today is the program. Cam Edwards is the guest host. That would be me. I'm the editor at BarryAndArms.com. A three three got Tony is the number to call. Uh, coming up next hour, Selena Zito, columnist for the Washington Examiner, the New York Post, going to join us. We'll talk about a couple of her latest columns, including a piece on Mitch McConnell as the spokesman for Middle America. But we've been talking about the the Second Amendment this hour with uh, Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation, and I mentioned that Joe Biden used one of those uh, phrases that just makes me grind my teeth when I hear gun control advocates say, why do you need blank? 
But we don't have a bill of needs. We have a bill of rights. Uh, so it's not about need. We don't need cars that can go faster than the speed limit, right? We, we don't need fast food that can clog our arteries. We don't need access to tobacco. As a matter of fact, the Biden administration trying to ban menthol cigarettes uh, because we don't need them. But we have the right to keep and bear arms. And again, why do you need to put someone in prison because they own a 100 round magazine that they're not using to commit a violent crime? I would say we don't need to put those people in prison. But what are the other phrases that drives me crazy from gun control activists? I support the Second Amendment, but. I've never heard any of these individuals ever say, hey, you know what, I support the Second Amendment and this gun control bill goes too far. I've never heard that. It's always, I support the Second Amendment, but I also support this gun control restriction because I don't believe it impacts the Second Amendment. The latest example of this is the interim police chief in Austin, Texas, uh, Joseph Chacon. So in Texas this year, it looked like the big Second Amendment legislative priority was going to be a Second Amendment sanctuary bill. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott got behind this even before the legislature began its session, said, I want one of these bills to get to my desk. I want to send a signal to the federal government that we're not going to cooperate with any new gun control laws. And that bill's making progress. But another bill has sort of come out of left field, was not expected to go far in the Texas legislature, uh, but it has already passed out of the Texas House, and there is growing momentum for this bill to get a vote in the state Senate, and it's permitless carry or constitutional carry. In essence, if you can legally own a firearm, then you can legally carry that firearm as well. You shouldn't have to get a permission slip like you do in New York State. You shouldn't have to demonstrate good cause to carry a firearm. And we now have 20 states across the country that have adopted constitutional carry laws. Each and every one of those states, by the way, you can still get a concealed carry license if you want one. So you have, you know, reciprocity with another state you're traveling to. But you don't have to have a license to carry as long as you can legally possess that gun. And again, this bill is gaining momentum in Texas. Joseph Chacon is very bothered by this. He says, I support the Second Amendment, but I don't support this bill. He says, in fact, I want to be clear, this is not about the Second Amendment. It's not about people's right to lawfully carry a firearm. I'm very much in support of all those things. Carrying a powerful weapon is also a responsibility. And he's right. But that responsibility doesn't disappear if permitless carry becomes the law in the state of Texas. As a matter of fact, in the state of Texas right now, it's legal for somebody to openly carry a firearm without a license. They just can't wear a jacket. They can't untuck their shirt and, you know, conceal that firearm. They, they have to keep it exposed. So why is Joseph Chacon and why are other gun control advocates so bothered by the idea of permitless carry? Chacon said, quote, it's reasonable and important to ask of someone carrying a firearm in public, know how to safely handle and store a gun and have a basic awareness of law related to weapons and use of deadly force. Again, I agree, but that's not the question. Because under Texas law, you can currently openly carry without showing any sort of proof of training or things of that nature. Does Joseph Chacon believe that law needs to disappear? He didn't say anything about it. 
Instead, he's just objecting to the permitless carrying of concealed firearms. Look, I, I am all in favor, as a Second Amendment supporter, I, I do believe that our rights come with responsibilities. But I also don't believe that putting another law on the books that can put people in prison, that can criminalize the right to keep and bear arms if it is not exercised in a governmentally approved fashion, is the way to go. Particularly in a, a state that is as Second Amendment supportive as the state of Texas. If Joseph Chacon is really concerned about this, if the, the interim chief of police in Austin, Texas, is really, really bothered by the thought of unlicensed legal gun owners lawfully carrying a firearm in public, there's an easy fix that should ease his mind. The Austin Police Department should offer on a weekly basis basic gun training classes. That's it. You want people to get educated? Well, then educate them. You want people to have that training? Ensure that they can get it. And don't just do this in the, you know, high-class neighborhoods of Austin. As Amy Swears said uh, just a few minutes ago, gun control laws do end up disproportionately impacting lower-income Americans. They do disproportionately impact communities of color. So hold these basic gun safety classes. underserved community that you believe they need to be responsible gun owners. You do that, and you don't need to put a new law on the books. You don't need to put people in prison because they're carrying without a license. I, I, again, I'm a Second Amendment supporter, and I don't believe that there's anything wrong with permitless carry. Again, we've seen 20 states around the union adopt this law. I think we're likely to see many more. I'm sad that Indiana wasn't one of them this year, but uh, there's always 2022. All right, stick around. That music means we've got to take a quick time out. But when we return, Selena Zito is going to join us, columnist at the Washington Examiner at the New York Post. She's got an interesting take on Mitch McConnell we're going to get to next hour, as well as some other uh, big headlines. We'll be right back with more Tony Katz today. in for Mr. Katz on the program. We're going to be joined by Selena Zito, Washington Examiner columnist, New York Post columnist here in a couple of minutes. She uh, had a sit-down interview with one Senator Mitch McConnell not long ago. She uh, wrote about it at the Washington Examiner. Some interesting, interesting uh, notes by Mitch McConnell, including uh, his reaction to the Democrats' court-packing threats. But before we spend some time with Selena, let's talk about another interesting anecdote that just popped up here. A uh, member of the Democratic House leadership announcing that she will not be running for re-election next year. And this is kind of a surprise. Uh, Representative Sherry Bustos, who uh, was the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chairwoman in the 2020 elections, not only did she uh, step down from the DCCC, now she's saying that she's going to step down from Congress entirely. She was still a part of uh, Nancy Pelosi's leadership team this year. And as Politico says, there were few Democrats who directly blamed Sherry Bustos for the disastrous uh, results for House Democrats in 2020. And they were disastrous results. 
I mean, uh, the, the Democrats in the House really thought that they were going to I expand their margins. And instead, they lost about a dozen seats to Republicans. But Democrats didn't really blame Sherry Bustos. So why is she leaving? Well, Republicans say it's because Democrats know they're going to get hammered next year. In fact, Sherry Bustos herself is basically the one non-Chicagoland Democrat member of Congress in Illinois. All of the other members of the Democratic caucus from Illinois represent either Chicago or one of the Chicago suburbs. Sherry Bustos is the only one who doesn't. And she actually had a really, really close race in 2020. She ended up winning by four points, which was the closest margin that she's had in her uh, five congressional runs. Uh, Esther Joy King, who is a uh, military veteran. She is a JAG in the Army Reserves. Uh, she lost by four points. She has already announced, by the way, that she's running again in 2022. And she's got to be absolutely thrilled that uh, Sherry Bustos is stepping down because now this is an open seat. Uh, in a very competitive district. Now, here's the thing. Because of the uh, census, we're going to see redistricting in states around the country. And since Democrats control the state legislature in Illinois, they're the ones that get to draw a new map. But there's, uh, there, there's, a, um, there's a bit of an issue for Democrats. Sure, they would love to hang on to Sherry Bustos' seat, but... They also are thinking about um, Representative Lauren Underwood, who is one of those Chicagoland area representatives, but in a more competitive district. And according to Politico, if they were to, if the Democrats in Illinois were to redraw the map so that Lauren Underwood has a more favorable district, instead of, you know, D plus four, it's D plus eight or D plus nine, the only way to do that is by carving up the district that is currently represented by Sherry Bustos. And you'd have to pull out uh, the cities of Rockford and Peoria from Bustos's district to protect Underwood. And Politico says that would leave Bustos's district, quote, unwinnable. They say leaving the district somewhat intact would allow Democrats to continue to compete there, though they're deprived of a well-known incumbent. But if they leave Bustos' district somewhat intact, then they, they leave open the possibility that not only would suite a seat flip to a Republican, but that Underwood seat in the Chicagoland suburbs would flip to the GOP as well. So they've got a decision to make when they start gerrymandering the state of Illinois into its you know, new map of congressional districts, are they going to try to you know, give a little to keep both of those seats? Or are they going to protect their flank and end up uh, leaving Bustos' seat right for a, a GOP takeover? It's really interesting. And I got to tell you, I, I do think that it is a sign that Democrats are concerned. In fact, I don't even think that they're concerned. I think Democrats are convinced that they're going to lose the House in 2022. I think that's one of the reasons why you are seeing a, a sizable portion of the Democratic caucus 
saying things like, we need to nuke the filibuster. We need to pack the court. It, it, now is our moment. Our window of opportunity is closing because they know that in 2022, they are likely to lose the House. Now, the Senate map is a little more competitive. Um, when I look at the Senate map, I can see a couple of uh, Republican-held seats that could flip to Democrats. I, I see a couple of seats that Republicans could actually pick up. Uh, but the Senate makeup is likely to continue to be very, very close. I, I, I predict that Nancy Pelosi will not be the Speaker of the House uh, after the 2022 elections are held. I think Democrats are going to lose their majority. It's just a matter of by how much and what seats do they lose. And I think, honestly, the problem for the Democrat Party right now is that the more talk of court packing, the more talk of nuking the filibuster, the more talk of primary challenges to you know senators like Joe Manchin, uh, who's not up, by the way, until 2024, but they're still already talking about primary. The, the, the more the extreme voices on the left clamor for these things, the more it turns off those centrist voters who maybe cast a vote for Democrats in 2020 because they didn't like Donald Trump. They saw Joe Biden as a return to normalcy. But now they're seeing Joe Biden embrace this far left agenda. And now they're looking around saying, OK, this isn't what I voted for. Those are reachable voters for Republicans next year. And I think many of them are going to return to the fold as long as the Republican uh, Cong congressional candidate uh, is not as crazy. You know, as it is in most elections for a lot of voters, it's a lesser of two evils. Which one do I like, uh, do I dislike the least? And I think Republicans have a, a great deal of potential to make big gains across the country, not just in Illinois. And I think Sherry Bustos' announcement that she's stepping down, I think that's a sign of it. I mean, she's talked about how she, you know, may run for Senate, but I mean, honestly, Tammy Duckworth, she's the junior senator from Illinois. Uh, she's not going anywhere. Bustos is not going to challenge her in a primary. Dick Durbin, who's the senior senator from Illinois, he's not up for re-election until, I believe, 2026. So uh, Bustos doesn't need to retire now and, uh, and spend the next four years prepping for a, a Senate run, particularly when she doesn't even know if uh, Dick Durbin is, is going to retire uh, at the end of this term. Now, something else is going on here. And I don't think it's just the fact that Bustos's district is competitive. I, I think it's the fact that Democrats know that they're really in danger of losing the majority in the House come next November. We're going to talk about that. Obviously, Mitch McConnell would love to see uh, a, a return to being the Senate Majority Leader as well. And our next guest, Selena Zito, actually spent some time with the now Senate Minority Leader, talking about uh, what Republicans can do to gain back the Senate. We'll talk with Selena about that after a quick break. Stick around. There's more Tony Cast today coming up next.
Tony Katz, today is the program, 833-GOT-TONY. That is the number to call. Although if you do call, you won't get Tony because he's off today. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BearingArms.com, where I uh, focus on Second Amendment news and information, but... You know, I'm a well-rounded guy. I don't just have to talk about uh, gun issues. And uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, sat down with Selena Zito, Washington Examiner columnist. We're uh, having a little bit of trouble connecting with Selena, but hopefully she'll be able to join us here in a few minutes. I, I do want to talk about something that McConnell told Selena Zito. They, they got to discussing the... idea of court packing. Some Democrats, the Supreme Court takes up uh, the Second Amendment case out of New York, the case dealing with New York's carry laws. We've already seen Democratic senators like Sheldon Whitehouse and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand last year when the Supreme Court was considering a, a challenge to a New York City gun law. They wrote the Supreme Court basically a, a threatening letter uh, in the form of a court brief that, that, that warned the court if you take this case and you decide in favor of the Second Amendment, you strike down this New York City gun law, well, we just might have to restructure the court because it will be clear that you all are just a bunch of partisan hacks and aren't really interested in uh, ruling on the, 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 the law itself. You just want to, you know, get your own personal policy preferences out there. Now, in that particular case, the court ended up declaring that the New York City law in question had been mooted because New York City changed the law after the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. So um, I guess crisis averted at the court, but it's coming back. There is a sizable wing of the Democrat Party who, again, they believe that this is their moment. And if they don't act now, that they will lose the ability to reshape this country for generations to come. And the key to this is getting rid of the filibuster. If they can pass whatever they want with 51 votes, then they can pack the court. They can pass Joe Biden's gun control laws. They can uh, implement his gun ban. They can uh, pass H.R. Uh, 1, the, the, the voting bill that would basically guarantee one-party rule going forward in this country. They could do all of those things. But as long as the filibuster remains in effect and it takes 60 votes, in essence, to pass the bill out of the Senate, they're stymied. And so you've seen this growing hostility towards Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, you know, threats to, to primary them in West Virginia and Arizona when they run for re-election, attempts to, uh, to twist Joe Manchin's arm. Well, what about, what about if we just had, you know, some filibuster reform uh, and we, we brought back the talking filibuster? What about that? And Manchin, you know, he's kind of been squishy. He, he's, he's kind of said, well, you know, I'd be open to maybe some reforms and then he'll backtrack. I, I hate the fact that Joe Manchin is basically the, the one person standing between uh, our right to keep and bear arms and Joe Biden's attempt to criminalize the possession of modern sporting rifles and magazines that could hold 10 rounds. But, but that is the fact at the moment. And it's probably also the only thing standing between uh, a nine-justice Supreme Court and a 13-justice Supreme Court with four new justices added by, by Joe Biden. You know, Biden proposed this commission that is uh, going to look at this issue 
and uh, weigh in with maybe some recommendations. That that commission is supposed to be finished with its report in the fall of this year. And I think they're going to release the report right about a year before the midterms, which makes court packing a midterm election issue, which I don't think is going to play well for Democrats. Mitch McConnell doesn't think so either. Uh, he talked about what the Democrats are trying to do, and he actually said that the threat of court packing is more real and more brazen today than when Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to do it in the 1930s. You know, back in the 1930s, Roosevelt was passing all of these New Deal programs during his first 100 days, sweeping wholesale changes to the structure of the federal government. And then many of those New Deal programs were struck down by a conservative Supreme Court. And eventually Roosevelt said, all right, enough of this. And he announced his court packing plan, which was met with great opposition, even among a lot of Democrats at the time. Uh, but you also had a Supreme Court Justice, uh, Owen Roberts, who sort of changed his, you know, his, his, his jurisprudence uh, philosophy and allowed for more of these New Deal programs to remain in effect. Thanks, Justice Roberts. What is it with justices named Roberts going squishy? We've got a history of that on the Supreme Court. Well, Mitch McConnell thinks that uh, Democrats are trying to do the same type of thing right now. And McConnell told Selena Zito, quote, you've seen Chuck Schumer, for example, go over in front of the Supreme Court and actually seemingly threaten the court if it didn't rule the way he particularly wanted them to on an issue, which is really quite noteworthy and unusual, he said. And he said, having said that, I also believe that they would pack the court if they could. And I think that the fact that Joe Biden did not just rule this out, just eliminate it. He could have quoted Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer and said, we're not doing it. But he didn't. Well, no, he, he, he absolutely didn't. In fact, he did the opposite. He, he didn't go out and embrace it. He didn't say, yeah, we're going to pack the court. But he said, all right, we're going to investigate this issue even further. Right. We're going to we're going to let the experts take a look at this and uh, weigh in and, and give us their recommendations. Of course, the makeup of this commission of experts is about three to one Democrat to Republican. So we have a pretty good idea of what this commission is going to say when it releases its report a year from now. Now, I would remind Mitch McConnell that it wasn't just Chuck Schumer, as I mentioned. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, Senator Gillibrand, uh, Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. There were two others. There were five senators altogether who sent that, that threatening letter to the Supreme Court when it came to a, uh, a case dealing with the right to keep and bear arms, warning them that the court would be restructured if they dared to uh, overturn a New York City gun control law, which, uh, by the way, the law in question was, you wonder how bad it was? So the law in question in New York actually prevented legal gun owners, those folks who had a, a rare permit to own a firearm in New York City, they could only take their guns to one of seven pre-approved ranges in the five boroughs of New York City. So if they had, you know, a, a cabin upstate New York, they couldn't take their legally owned gun from New York City up to, you know, outside of Utica. It would be a crime for them to do that. It would be a crime for them to take their handgun and go to a shooting competition on Long Island. 
That's how draconian the law was in New York City. But those, that's the law that these Democrats wanted to keep in place and threaten the court with restructuring if they overturned it. Again, it didn't come to pass because New York City ultimately uh, mooted the law. They changed the law so the Supreme Court would not rule on this case. But the threat to pack the court, I agree with McConnell. It, 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 it is real. It is genuine. And I suspect that because Democrats know they're facing such headwinds in the midterm elections, particularly in the House, that the calls to pack the court are going to grow more shrill as we get closer to the midterms. And this is going to be, I think, a dividing line within the Democrat Party. You're going to have a lot of Democrats in safe blue districts going all in on this idea of now's the moment. If we don't act now, we can't save the republic from the fascist menace of the GOP. And you're going to have a lot of these Democrats in swing districts saying, shut up and quit talking about this because I'm going to lose my seat if you keep talking about Republicans being fascist. All right, stick around. We've got more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this quick break. Tony Cast today, 833-GOD-TONY, that's the number to call. My name is Cam Edwards. I am the editor at BearingArms.com. I am taking a few hours away from uh, writing about the latest Second Amendment news and information so I can sit behind the microphone and hang out with you, and I really appreciate uh, Tony letting me do so on this uh, Friday afternoon. So it was Wednesday when Joe Biden addressed this joint session of Congress. Uh, and during that speech, Joe Biden said that the most lethal terrorist threat to our homeland today is white supremacy, right? And then Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina, gave the GOP rebuttal to the president's speech. And Senator Scott was even more blunt than Joe Biden was, calling white supremacy the biggest terrorist threat to the United States. Tim Scott said, look, America is not a racist country. Now, he didn't pretend that we've never had problems with racism. He didn't shy away from the evils of slavery and the evils of the Jim Crow era. But he did acknowledge the progress that has been made in this country as we have continued to strive over the centuries for a more perfect union. And now Joe Biden is saying, uh, okay, no, we're not a racist country. This was uh, part of his interview with the Today Show. Uh, and he was asked, um, all right, so, so what about this? What about Tim Scott's response? And Biden said, well, I don't think the American people are racist. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> you just said that white supremacy is the biggest terrorist threat this nation faces. But now you don't think the American people are racist. He said, I think after 400 years, African-Americans have been left in a position where they're so far behind the eight ball in terms of education and health, in terms of opportunity. He said, I don't think America's racist, but I think the overhang from all of the Jim Crow and before that have had a cost and we have to deal with it. Well, that wasn't what Joe Biden said in his joint session to Congress on Wednesday. 
He said white supremacy is the biggest terrorist threat this nation faces. Now he doesn't think the American people are racist. Well, both of those th two things cannot be true. Biden did not say, look, I don't think most Americans are racist. Right? He, he didn't say that at all. He said, I don't think the American people are racist. Okay. What about those white supremacists that, that, that pose a terrorist threat, the gravest terrorist threat to the United States, according to, to you, Mr. President? I mean, clearly they must be racist, right? Even though you say the American people are not. This is so incoherent on the part of Joe Biden. But it, it's, it's completely expected. You know, he makes these statements, can't back it up, starts to walk it back, even though he's now just basically mumbling gobbledygook. Look, I can even acknowledge, yeah, we've got some racists in this country. Uh, we've got some racists in the county where I live. I encounter them occasionally. I can acknowledge that there is racism out there. I can acknowledge that racists exist. But I can also acknowledge that we have far fewer racists in rural Virginia where I live than we did 50 years ago. You know, in fact, I live not far from the town of Farmville, Virginia, which is located in Prince Edward County. Most people don't know this, but uh, the Brown versus Board of Education case that, that ultimately overturned segregation was actually a number of different cases that were consolidated by the Supreme Court. And the majority of these cases were not actually based out of Topeka, Kansas, which is where the Brown case was filed. The majority of these cases were actually filed by students in Prince Edward County, Virginia. Uh, a civil rights activist named Barbara Johns, who was 15 years old when she led a walk out of the black high school in Farmville because of the conditions there. She was among those plaintiffs. And when the Supreme Court struck down segregated schools in Brown versus Board of Education, the white citizens of Prince Edward County ultimately decided that they would shut down the public schools rather than integrate. And so for five years, first they resisted integration for about six years, from 1954 to 1960. But then when it became apparent that, okay, we, we can't do this anymore, we can't just keep stalling and delaying, they shut down the private school, the public schools for five years. The white kids, a lot of them ended up going to private schools. The black students, a lot of them ended up being taught in church basements or in private homes. When I moved to the area about eight years ago, one of the first people I met actually was a uh, older black gentleman. And we started talking and his dad worked for the Prince Edward Public Schools at the time. He was an educator. And when they shut down the public schools, the, uh, the school board was kind enough to say, listen, you can stay on as like a maintenance man. And he said, no, thanks. And he ended up helping to educate his own son and other children in the basement of a local church for five years. The Prince Edward County of 1960 is not the Prince Edward County of 2021. Now, I'm not saying that everything's perfect. I am saying 
it's a lot better than it was back then. Not only do we have integrated schools, you have interracial marriages. And it's, you know, people can walk through a grocery store with a, uh, you know, a, a, a white wife and a black husband and their biracial child. And nobody bats an eye. Whereas in 1960, um, that probably would have led to a, a punch or a threat. It certainly would have led to a lot of ugliness that simply has gone away because we have made great strides. And the sad thing is, we are now raising a generation of kids and even a generation of adults who don't recognize how far we've come. My own family, I have five kids. Two of my five kids are biracial. My family could not have comfortably lived where I live today a half century ago. And yet, my family feels completely at home in this rural county in Virginia, which is not only racially diverse, it is religious diverse. We have, uh, we, we have, we have everything from, from Amish farmers who are moving down from Pennsylvania to a Catholic monastery that just opened up a couple of years ago to a hippie commune called Yogaville that opened up in the 1970s. In addition to our, you know, African, uh, our AME churches, our Baptist churches, where I live used to be not so great. Used to be one of those places where you would find the sins of segregation and the, the ugliness of bigotry. And I'm, again, you can still find pockets of it. You can still find individuals who don't see their neighbors uh, as people, but instead see them as the color of their skin. We, we, we have it. I'm not claiming that it's disappeared. But I am absolutely certain that it is far better than what it has been in the past. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of folks on the left who cannot acknowledge that. And they want our children to believe that no matter how far we've come, we really haven't gone anywhere. We've just been spinning our wheels since 1619. It's an absolutely ludicrous position. It's one I believe that is uh, not politically helpful for Democrats, but I, I know that it is dangerous for the future of this country by dividing us needlessly instead of finding ways for us to come together on some of these issues. And Biden had that perfect opportunity. But uh, once again, Sleepy Joe blew it. All right, we're going to step away for a moment or two. When we come back, we've got more of the news of the day. Stick around. Much more Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Tony Katz today is the program. My name is Cam Edwards. I am the guest host for Tony today. 833-GOT-TONY is the number to call. You know, so back in the uh, battle days of the Cold War, the, the Soviet Union, actually even before this, uh, the uh, Cold War, the, the Soviet Union had a, a name, Soviet officials did, for those uh, Western liberals who would parrot the, the Communist Party line without actually being members of the Communist Party. A useful idiots uh, was the phrase that they used. And I found a useful idiot, not, not, not someone who's parroting the Communist Party line, 
these days, the Democratic Party line, which, depending on where you stand, maybe one of the same. Uh, Matthew Dowd, former speechwriter for George W. Bush, he's one of these guys who now portrays himself as, as an independent, right? I'm an independent thinker, but he only ever seems to criticize the right. He's got a piece at USA Today, <laughs> which is full of uh, idiocy. Uh, now I'm not sure how useful it is. He says, Biden should have addressed anti-democratic fantasy land Trumpism in his speech to Congress. Happy talk about American greatness, he says, will only lead to disappointment if we don't address our broken democracy. Now, this is how you know Matthew Dowd is just a, a true, um, I can't say what I want to say because this is terrestrial radio, a, uh, a true goober. Um, he writes, Biden, yes, laid out some exceedingly popular policies he would like Congress to pass, from raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour to, quote, common sense gun reform, to broad immigration reform, to fundamental criminal justice reform while combating systemic racism in our nation today. But he, he didn't go far enough. He, he needed to, according to, uh, to Matthew Dowd, uh, to, to, to speak some truth. And, 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 and not just ignore the lies of the right. Of course, as we talked about earlier this program, Biden used that joint session of Congress to lie to the American people himself. He wasn't interested in truth-telling. He lied to the American people about the right to keep and bear arms. He lied to the American people about the success of the assault weapons ban in reducing violent crime. He lied to the American people about large capacity magazines allowing individuals to shoot hundreds of rounds in seconds. He lied to the American people about these things. And he lied to the American people about, you know, how, how dangerous this country is. And how I actually, you know, from what I've seen from Joe Biden's speech, and like I said, I didn't watch it live. I did not subject myself to that. But from what I have seen of President Biden's speech, I, I wouldn't exactly call it uplifting. I, I wouldn't say that he spent a lot of time talking about the, the current greatness of America. It seemed to me like he spent a lot of time talking about the problems that this country has, some of which, uh, according to Biden, date back to the founding of this country that have never, ever been addressed. We've never gotten anything better. But Matthew Dow says, nah, that didn't go far enough. He said, if I were writing the speech, I would have said, if you traffic in lies and don't believe in the truth, you're damaging our democracy. Well, if Matthew Dowd really, truly believes that, then why isn't he calling out Joe Biden? for trafficking in lies during that speech. Oh, because Matthew Dowd doesn't see Joe Biden's lies as lies. He, he sees them as, uh, you know, an argument in favor of, quote-unquote, common-sense gun reform, even if Biden had to mislead the American people to make his case. Dowd says, uh, I'm an optimist about America, but not in the short term. Unless we lay out clear clearly where we are today, out clearly, where today is a point in time where the two major political parties are full of people who despise the other party and are more willing 
to view our fellow Americans as the biggest threat to democracy than our external enemies. And I would argue that guys like Matthew Dowd are a part of the problem by refusing to acknowledge that it wasn't just one party or just one president who brought us to this toxic point in American politics, that this didn't just spring up overnight with the election of Donald Trump or even the election of Barack Obama. You can go back to the 2000 election, 21 years ago almost, in which Democrats declared that the election had been stolen, that Al Gore was the rightful winner and George Bush had unlawfully and unconstitutionally seized power with the help of the Supreme Court. We have been operating for a generation on bad faith with the other political party. Democrats view Republicans as uh, you know, individuals who have unlawfully seized power. Many Republicans see Democrats the same way. But if you can't acknowledge that both parties view the other with such deep hostility and suspicion, and Matthew Dowd is clearly unwilling or unable to do that, then you can't address the problem. It is arguing in bad faith for somebody like Matthew Dowd to try to pin all the blame on the right just as it would be equally a bad faith argument to try to pin all the blame on the left. Again, <laughs> we've got a lot of problems in this country that have uh, developed uh, maybe one of the few areas of bipartisanship. Uh, both parties have done some things to, 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 to create this toxic political environment. And unfortunately, it's got to be up to both parties and members of both parties, as well as those uh, Americans in the uh, muddled middle, who really want to try to get to a better place. That, that's the only way to do it. But in order to do that, you've got to quit viewing the other as the enemy. And unfortunately, it's hard to stand down if you're a conservative when you've got Democrats who are proclaiming you are the enemy. Why should you be the one to give up first? That's some real talk. I want to hear from Matthew Dabb. I'm glad I got to say it. Thanks again for being a part of Tony Cast today. Hope you have a great weekend. I'll be back, I don't know, maybe the next time Tony takes off. But I do appreciate being able to hang out behind the microphone. So thank you to Tony Katz. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.